know if another song could be as appropriate as that song is uh, on Father's Day, but good, good father. We all set, guys? I don't, can you hear me okay? I can't hear myself, so that's okay. We're good, good. Uh, good morning. My name is Bill Walker. Uh, if you do not know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church. Uh, really excited to have you in our midst. If you happen to be one of the fraternity of fatherhood, I wish you a very, very happy Father's Day. Uh, this day was actually set aside early in the 1900s uh, to be celebrated on the third Sunday in June. And the goal was to honor fathers as well as fatherhood in the impact that fathers have in society as a whole. So if you're a dad here today, a father here today, I hope you get celebrated and I hope you get honored uh, by your children because that's what this day is designed for. Uh, I've had the privilege already today of receiving three text messages from my son, who actually did them while he was working until uh, one in the morning, uh, but I was long since asleep, so when I got up this morning and looked at my phone, he had all these uh, well wishes for Father's Day. And then I found a card with words that I am blushing over as to how he would think that of me, uh, and then I found candy and something to go to the movies, so hey, I've already had a great, great Father's Day. Uh, but the strangeness of this day for me in particular is uh, on Thursday, I took Joey and Mariah to the airport where they flew out to uh, Paulsbo, uh, Washington State, where this morning Joey is actually leading the worship in a church where they're actually interviewing him to be their worship pastor. So if you would continue to pray for God's will in that area, that would be awesome. So they're gone. They won't be back until late tomorrow night. And this afternoon, we take Elisha uh, along with the Kaisers and Michelle uh, over to fly out to um, ultimately Indi Indianapolis, or Indiana is where they're going. So I wouldn't have planned it this way on Father's Day, but really for the first time in 22 years, my wife and I are going to know what it's like to be empty nesters tonight. <laughs> I, yeah. Again, I would not have chosen Father's Day to have this happen. But I'm okay with that. I just want you to know that. So we're going to make the most of however short our time is. Uh, but it'll be a lot, a lot of fun. Uh, take your copy, I, I ask, uh, please. Uh, your copy of the breath of God. And open with me today, once again, to the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6 this morning. As we continue to talk about this thing called the good life. And the good life is simply this. It is a life of following Jesus Christ in loving obedience and doing good out of a heart that is actually becoming good in him. This is the good life. It is the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever preached by the greatest person who ever lived. And today we are, again, going to finish up the third section of Jesus' sermon, his, his message that he preached so, so many years ago as we talk about the interior of the good life and finishing it up this morning. But I, I would just like you to notice the flow of Jesus' speech or his message or his sermon. He began with an introduction. And in that introduction, he began with an invitation to follow him, to become his disciples. And the influence of a disciple's life is that we're going to become salt and light in a world that is unpalatably dark and lost in sin. And then the key to this is the impartation of God's grace that he gives us in Jesus Christ and through the word of God. Then we've looked at some of the instructions as to what this life of following Jesus is meant to look like. 
it is indeed a growing life of peace and fidelity, integrity and selfless love. This is what Christ is talking to us, his followers, about. The section we're in now, called the interior of the good life, is ultimately essential, it is ultimately necessary, because Jesus knows that if we're not nurturing this secret life of holy habits in worshiping the Father, there is no way we can ever realize the transformation of our character and who we are. This is done in this very intimate, this very personal, experiential side of the Christian life. There is meant to be a very deep experience that happens in our hearts as we walk with Christ and get to know the Father through him. My concern for a lot of Christians, 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 is, is that well, on one hand, we don't even know what it means to have an experiential side of a relationship with God. And, and, and so we're not really sure what this really means. When I use terms like that, relationship, experience, personal, uh, profound, private, uh, the words of A.W. Tozer came to me this week. Again, I got tweeted by A.W. Tozer this past week. Isn't that great? You really should get on Twitter if you're not, because like, I got C.S. Lewis Twittering me, and I've got, I've got uh, A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer's words this week kind of struck me. See if they don't do the same for you. He made this statement. He said, for millions of Christians, Christians, God is no more real than he is to non-Christians. They simply go through life trying to love an ideal or be loyal to a mere principle. And that's my concern, that that could actually be true in our hearts and lives. We come to church, we read the Bible, we pray, but there's no true heart-level transformation or nurturing of relationship that is really going on in our lives. I love the way the Puritans put it. The Puritans, the great old Puritans, you know, the Pur Puritanical age we often mock. But the Puritans were great, great uh, God, Christ followers. And they had three basic tenets behind this thing they called Christian spirituality. Tenet number one was, quite frankly, that we are to know the living God through his word. We are to pursue God through his word to have a deep intellectual understanding of the word of God. That was one of the keys of, of proper spirituality. But the second key is ultimately important. They also said that it was vital that the Holy Spirit would so take the truth and witness it to our hearts that we actually had these personal experiences with the living God. And then thirdly, it should issue forth in an obedience of life. So it was about the head, the key is the heart, and then it involves the hands. Now the Puritans were, were deep contemplative thinkers, so they spent a lot of time in the presence of God, and God would often speak and touch and talk to them in those times. Very experiential, based upon the word. But they made this a requirement for membership in churches back in those days. If you were going to be a member of a church then you had to do two things. You had to prove soundness of theology, and then you also had to prove the inner working of the Holy Spirit's graces in the transformation of your character. That was essential if you were going to come into membership, because you can know it without knowing him. And that was their concern. And so what we're talking about in this section called the interior of the good life is really about knowing him. 
And apart from that, you can't have eternal life. Jesus said in John chapter 17 and verse 3, in this is eternal life, that they may know you, gnosko, that they might have a personal relationship with you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So what we're talking about here is vital to your Christian life. And we talked about these things along these lines. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about this vital truth of generously trusting the Father. You cannot actively watch the inexperienced God in your life until you learn this discipline of the Christian life. It is a habitual, personal matter between you and God. If we can trust him with our souls, can't we trust him with our budgets? We are supposed to give him the first and the best of our lives. And so the Bible often refers to that as the tithe. This is an essential component of this experiential side of a relationship with God. You will witness God and see God in ways you've never seen before if you would learn this discipline. So if you're interested in doing this, a part of that involves that passing of the plate, which happens on a Sunday morning. Uh, if you're interested in giving in that fashion, we would love to give you a box of envelopes that will connect your name to a number so that whatever you give can be connected to you, and at the end of the year, you can get a tax-deductible receipt. But if you're not interested in doing that, there is another way that we make available. If you go to our website, Grace Church, um, yeah, gracewaldorf.org, gracewaldorf.org, and click right there, online giving, another window will open up, and that other window will be an opportunity for you to give online. First-time users, this is where you start your registration, quick giving, and it will actually keep a personal his history of all your giving there as well. So this is a discipline. This is one of the essential aspects of nurturing that personal side, the experiential side of your walk with God. So that is one way. Last week when we were together, it, it was also, we talked about this idea of graciously approaching the Father, graciously approaching the Father. This is the key component called prayer. Actively setting aside time to sit in the presence of God and to talk to God. And, you know, sometimes that sounds very intimidating. Where do I begin? How do I start? What do I say? That's why Jesus gave us these words in Matthew chapter 6, what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. It is a wonderful guide for you to sit with your Bible open and talk to God the Father. You just begin, our Father, my Father. You're in heaven. You're my Father in heaven. You're Daddy God. Think about that. Talk to him. Hallowed be your name. How can I lift up your name and your fame and increase your reputation? Oh, God, help me to know the way. Your kingdom come. How can that happen in and through my life? Your will be done. So on and so forth. And after you focus on the Father, his name, his fame, his kingdom, his, his um, will, then you ask for what you need. And it's funny how the ask all of a sudden is transformed by just being in his presence. So this is, again, part of that experiential side of knowing and walking with God. Essential, necessary, vital, if we're going to be growing followers of Jesus Christ. So there is that side about generously trusting Father. There is that side about graciously um, coming before the Father. Today, we're going to look at the third and the last of the things that Jesus highlights as being necessary in our internal life with God. And this is the idea of developing a hunger for God, or also what I would call greatly desiring Father. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. 
and then we'll take a moment and pray together. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, Jesus continued in this section on the interior life of the follower of Christ. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy <laughs> like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen or noticed by others. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, they have already received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will what? He will reward you. If you give in secret, he will reward you. If you pray in secret, he will reward you. If you fast in secret, he will reward you. And that reward is him. Experiencing him on a heart level that is absolutely transformational and undeniable. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, for the opportunity to gather uh, on this beautiful, beautiful summer day. I thank you that it is a day here in America where we uh, honor our dads. Uh, Father, uh, my dad has died many years ago. Uh, thankfully gone into your presence as he puts personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ only three months before he died. And so I look forward to the day where I get to embrace my father, earthly father again. But in the meantime, I have a good, good father, a heavenly father, one who loves me more than I can even understand, and one who is with me, walks with me, and guides me in ways that are just profound. Thank you, Father, for being the great father in being the one who can meet all the needs that many of our earthly fathers simply couldn't. We thank you for this morning. Uh, help us to walk into this truth with our eyes wide open and maybe with our hearts wide open. Please, Father, in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen. Amen. All right. Um, as we begin this discussion of fasting, I'm just going to say straight up front, um, I am the ultimate novice in this whole area uh, of my walk uh, uh, with the Lord in this. You see, I grew up, or I grew up, I came to Christ about 21 years of age, and I immediately got into a fundamental Baptist church. So I got immediately into kind of the fundamental side uh, of Christianity, and in that side of Christianity, we placed uh, an almost worship attitude on the Word of God. We almost worshiped the Word and not the Father who gave us the Word, but we were ultimately shy of experiences. Experiences were always those things you had to be careful of because they were always a little leery for people. So I never heard anyone ever teach on fasting. I went to a good Bible college, a New Brunswick Bible Institute, but again, it came from the more fundamentalist vein, and so we taught the Word, but we never taught this aspect of the Word, which is called fasting, which is a little bit more experiential, and so we shied away from that kind of a thing. I went to Washington Bible College and Capital Bible Seminary, and I can tell you in all my years of study there, we never once talked on fasting. We never, they never taught us what it meant or what it was used for or anything, and I don't know that anybody there, to my knowledge, did it, although if they were doing it correctly, I wouldn't have known, right? So, so what I want to say to you is, when it comes to this topic this morning, I'm a novice, and what I'm going to share with you today is simply uh, my understanding of the scripture on the topic, 
my understanding through others who have written well on the topic. And this past week, just so I wouldn't be absolutely without true knowledge in this area, I took a 36-hour fast asking the Father to teach me a little bit about this so that when I stood up here today, I wouldn't be absolutely clueless. So there, I don't know how to be any more frank than this, um, but I just want you to know that where we're about to go is new and different for me. But I just want to say that I believe in what we have before us today. I have found a new and wonderful door to open into my relationship with God the Father. And it has been very, very beautiful. And I'm anxious to grow in this aspect of my Christian life. So we're going to look at this thing called greatly desiring the Father. Now, as I um, started pushing into this topic of fasting, I found it interesting. You know, most of us kind of think of fasting as something that, that ancients did who were largely uneducated. You know, that's what they did because out of fear for some god. So there is a tradition in Judaism of fasting. There's a tradition in Islam of fasting. This is the month of Ramadan in, in Islam. This is their month of fasting. So it's always been kind of a religious thing. But I found it fascinating that science today, science today, which has no interest in religion, but science today has realized that our bodies have been designed in such a way that fasting is actually excellent for the body. It, it just kind of floored me. Now, they'll always connect that to evolution, you know? It's back when we were hunter-gatherers and we couldn't find a deer to kill, so we had to learn to fast and our bodies developed that way. I would rather see it on the other side of the issue that God gives us a command to fast and he made it good for us. That's just what God does. His commands, while they're designed to glorify him, are always best for ourselves. And so I realized, walking into this topic on fasting, that this thing is true for our lives as well as our spiritual lives. So, with that in mind, one of the things I discovered is in this area of, of, of our diets and maintaining proper weight and, and, and proper clarity, they have this thing today in the, in the dietitian world called intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting, let me, let me give you a basic definition of it, uh, lest I, I say it incorrectly. Uh, intermittent fasting is a willing abstinence from some or all food or drink or both for a period of time. So it's just this period of time where you're not gorging yourself, you're not eating all the time. And so what science is telling us is that fasting is actually healthy for our bodies. And it's, it's a key element in not only losing weight, but maintaining proper health. So they have this, uh, this way of looking at it. There are three primary uh, ways that they encourage intermittent, intermittent fasting, three different methods. And each of them is designed to help us not only eat fewer calories, but to have our bodies be detoxed, as well as optimize our hormones related to weight control. Interesting. Interesting. Science is discovering this. God has commanded his people long ago to do this. And the two are coming together yet again. That's often how it seems to play out. And so there are different ways that they encourage people to pursue intermittent fasting for the health of your body. Uh, one is called the 16-8 method. The 16-8 method. You fast for 16 hours each day and you eat all your food in one day in eight hours. Which basically means this. 
you skip breakfast every day. Now, wait a minute. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day, right? We've always been taught that. However, they're now realizing through all these various forms of science that if you skip breakfast every day and eat during an eight-hour window, such as from noon to 8 p.m., what this does is it allows your liver, which stores fats, which is the conversion of sugars and fats, your liver will not ultimately deplete that for at least 12 hours. And if it can deplete it, then it can draw on the other stores of fat in your body and thus keep you optimized. But if you don't give the liver a chance to empty itself, it will then store those sugars, those fats, in the rest of your body. So they're saying that this is actually ultimately healthy for you. So the 16-8 method. Another one is called eat, stop, eat. Eat, stop, eat. It sounds like most of us, doesn't it? We eat, stop long enough to breathe, and then eat again. I know. So actually, this is uh, you do one or two 24-hour fasts each week. For example, do not, uh, you do not eat after dinner one day, and you do not eat again until dinner the next day. Uh, this is a rather challenging rhythm to establish, but it has amazing effects on the body's uh, ability to increase metabolism. And so this is another way of intermittent fasting that they recommend for your health. And then the last one that seems to be very popular these days is something called the 5-2 diet, the 5-2 diet. This is where you only eat between five to 600 calories on two days of every week, and then you eat normally the other five days. And so science is basically telling us that fasting has come back into vogue when it comes to this thing called weight loss and proper maintenance of your health. Curious, curious. It's funny, God said something about fasting 2,000 years ago. He didn't tie it to our body's optimization, but science today is saying, yeah, it works that way. So that's one area. It, it is best for our bodies, according to science. But I found this even more intriguing. Not only is intermittent fasting good for our bodies, but apparently it's exceptionally good for our brain. Not long ago, uh, I got this uh, TED talk from St. John's University, uh, St. Hop John's Hopkins University. And uh, the doctor uh, is a man by the name of Dr. Mark Matson. Dr. Mark Matson. Let me just give you his rather impressive uh, bio. Uh, Dr. Mark Matson is the chief of the Laboratory of Neurosciences at the National Institute on Aging. He is also a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Matson is one of the foremost researchers in the area of cellular and molecular mechanisms underlying neurodegenerative disorders, such as Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and amyotropic lateral sclerosis. Can you say, wow? My bio doesn't sound that good. So this guy is, is a foremost authority in this area of degenerative diseases as we get older, particularly the area Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and, and such. I would like you to hear just two minutes of the video that he produced. I'll show you where you can find it in a few minutes. But hear what he has to say about this thing called intermittent fasting in the brain. Thanks, Brian. Uh, I'm at the National Institute on Aging, and as many of you know, as uh, people are getting older and there have been advances in cancer research, cardiovascular disease research, uh, many people who would have died uh, in their 50s and 60s from those diseases are living into the danger zone for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases. It's projected that by 2050, the number of people with Alzheimer's disease uh, 
will triple from what it is today. It's five million today. It'll be 15 million by 2050. In my lab, we use a number of different animal models that are relevant to age-related neurodegenerative disorders. We have mice that accumulate amyloid in their brain as they get older and they have learning and memory problems. We have mice that have damage to dopamine-producing neurons that control body movements. That's a uh, model of Parkinson's disease. And we also have models of stroke, which is, again, another major problem and, and cause of death. Well, it's been known for a long time that one way to extend the lifespan of laboratory animals is simply to reduce their energy intake. And in rats and mice, one can increase their lifespan by 30 or 40 percent. We started looking at the effects of energy restriction on the brain in the context of age-related neurodegenerative disorders and found that we could slow down the for example, abnormal accumulation of amyloid or the degeneration of dopamine neurons in the Alzheimer's and Parkinson's model by reducing energy intake. Now, there's a number of ways you can reduce energy intake. You can simply eat less at each meal, or you can do what we call intermittent fasting, so reduce the frequency of the meals. And what I'm going to tell you today is that um, fasting does good things for the brain, uh, in the animals, we have insight in into a lot of the neurochemical changes that are occurring in the brain that we think explain why uh, fasting is good. Curious, isn't it? The very thing that Jesus said 2,000 years ago, when you fast, which is dominantly for our relationship with God, actually has incredible side benefits for both our body's physical health and maintenance, as well as our future ability to keep our faculties in order. I just found that fascinating, that God gives us these things, and ultimately these things, science is realizing they are ultimately to bless us uh, in ways that we probably could not have considered otherwise. So we've talked about fasting is healthy for our bodies, fasting is healthy for our brains, but when Jesus said, when you fast, he wasn't talking about our bodies, he wasn't talking about our brains, he was talking about the health of our souls. That is what Jesus Christ puts the onus on in this section. Uh, fasting is meant to be a necessary part of our relationship with God. It's meant to be an aspect of how we meet God and experience God in our everyday lives. You know, um, the Bible actually speaks more on fasting than it does baptism. Now, none of us would qualm over the fact that baptism is a necessary part of our spiritual development and walk, but so too, this thing called fasting is as well. And so, um, notice what Jesus said. He says what? When you, when you, when you, when you, not if you. The simple expectation is this will be part of your walk with God. You will experience something called fasting in your relationship with God. Um, now, I think it's important to understand that when we talk fasting now, we're not talking about uh, simply not eating to lose weight or simply not eating in order to keep our brains healthy. We're talking about something completely different. Uh, I like the way one person put this. 
They said, without a purpose and a plan, it is not Christian fasting. It is just going hungry. And so if we're going to learn the benefit of what Jesus is talking about, then we need to understand that there is a purpose behind this thing, and there is a plan behind this thing, and the spin-off benefits are to our body and our mental health, but this is really about our soul. This is really about our internal life and walk with God. And so let's begin by considering a little bit of the purpose the Bible gives to this thing called fasting. There are many reasons that we find in the Bible for people to fast. Uh, let me just give you a few. One of the reasons people experienced fasting in the Bible was because they went before God and it, they found that it strengthened their prayer, their earnestness in the presence of God. And you will discover that fasting and prayer go together like peanut butter and jelly. They go together like two sides of the same coin. Because if you're fasting and not praying, then you're merely losing weight. But if you're praying, you're buying up this opportunity for a spiritual purpose. So it actually strengthens us in prayer. Now, I want you to notice, what's this reference? Say it out loud. Okay, did that happen before Jesus died on the cross or after Jesus died on the cross? Yes! Some people get it in their minds, well, fasting was good until Jesus came. Now we don't need to fast anymore. Oh, no, no, no. There are references in the Bible, in the book of Acts, of the church practicing fasting. In fact, this one in Acts chapter 13 and verse 3 is the church in Antioch. And they had, they had gotten together and they were fasting and they were worshiping, it said. And the Holy Spirit spoke to them, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for those people who will do the first missionary journey. And it says that then they turned to prayer and fasting and they laid hands on them. And so this happened after the cross. This is how they sought and discerned God's will in this matter. Now, what's also cool, let me just kind of run all over the place here real quick. What's also cool is you'll discover that Moses, as he was about to ascend to get the Torah, the law of Israel, that he fasted for 40 days before he got the law of God. You'll discover that before Jesus started his earthly ministry, he went into the desert where he fasted 40 days and 40 nights before he began his earthly ministry. And before the missionary gospel got going, they fasted and prayed. Isn't it interesting? There is a definite connection in the scripture between the great movements of God and the people of God fasting and praying. You'll discover as you look at how the gospel moved amongst various countries, whether it be Europe or the United States or Korea, that it was connected to people who fasted and prayed. The United States of America has experienced three great awakenings, and each of them is connected to people who fasted and prayed, asking God to do that. You'll discover that in Korea, the first church was established in the late 1800s, within 100 years after the first church was established in Korea, and the Koreans are known for fasting and praying, that they went from one church in 100 years to 30,000 churches. So you will discover that there is something unique that God honors and blesses when it comes to this thing called fasting and praying. Now, my concern is we'll go to one of two extremes. My old fundamentalist camp, oh my gosh, it's experience, run from it. Or, or we'll go to a charismatic extreme, you gotta fast 40 days every 40 days. So, I mean, there are extremes in this. But you're gonna discover that the truth is often found in the middle, and there is a healthy, balanced way that we can actually use this in our lives and in our relationship with God. So it strengthens prayer, and God seems to use it in remarkable ways for the furtherance of his mission on earth. Uh, another thing is in seeking God's guidance. Again, this is Acts chapter 14. This is where Paul and Barnabas, after they had uh, placed a number of burgeoning new churches 
in their first missionary journey, they went around and they prayed and fasted, asking God to show them the leadership for these churches. Then they laid hands on the elders of each of these. So again, fasting and guidance, fasting and prayer, they go, to, they go together uh, in the word of God. Here's another one. It is a form of expression of grief. When you're absolutely overwrought and you don't know what to do, often to express that grief to God, people will fast as they pray and lament before the Lord. Seeking deliverance or protection is another reason why people chose to fast in the presence of God, expressing repentance and or returning to God, uh, humbling oneself before God, expressing concern for the work of God, uh, ministering to the needs of others. I want to encourage you, if you want to look up a verse from today, look at Isaiah 58. That's a powerful talk, uh, teaching on the issue of fasting. Um, then we have this truth of Jesus Christ himself overcoming temptation and dedication of himself to God. By the way, the Bible says that Satan came to Jesus at the end of the 40-day fast and he tempted him with bread. So we think fasting actually debilitated Jesus' ability to, to uh, meet up with Satan, and Satan was abusing that opportunity. But listen to me, that's not exactly what happened. What happened was Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and when he met Satan, he was then ready to take him on. That was what happened. Fasting is how God chose and enabled Jesus to then fend off the devil with the word of God. So fasting wasn't what disabled him. It actually enabled him to uh, take on that encounter. And then lastly, I would consider this the overarching reason for fasting, particularly today. And this is to express love and to express worship to God um, in heaven. And so biblical fasting is this. Let me give you a definition of biblical fasting. Scriptural fasting is a temporary renunciation of something that in and of itself is good, like food. How many think food is good? Haba haba, yeah, yeah, we love food. But when we come to this thing called fasting, it is a temporary renunciation of, of something like food in order. This is the purpose, to intensify our expression of need for something greater, namely God and his work in our lives. So fasting has a particular ability to remind us just how needy we truly are before God. How many people were born in America? I got more hands on that than any other question I've ever asked. Yeah, we were born in America, which by definition means that we have our senses overwhelmed and overstimulated and overindulged and abused by abundance more than any other people on earth has ever had. So we, by virtue of being Americans, and God bless America, thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being here, but the world around us dulls our senses to the point where we are numb to most things of life particularly spiritually speaking. And so it is in this numbness, this abuse of our senses, that fasting actually becomes a very powerful tool in our lives and a means of God's grace to embrace someone that is greater than our physical appetites. It is for those, please listen, fasting is for those who have become satisfied with the status quo. Fasting is for those who truly become, who want to become desperate for God. 
Fasting is really for those who need a growing heart of hunger for God. This is a gift God has given to us that permits us to connect with God in a unique way that nothing else really can do. As I mentioned, uh, not long ago, uh, actually it was Tuesday evening, um, I did not eat, and then I chose to fast all day Wednesday, and I didn't eat again until Thursday noon, about 36 hours or so. And in that, I wrote these notes 24 hours into that time. This is simply my experience. I asked God to give me direction so that I could be here to, this morning. So. I don't know if you want to say this is divine. I wouldn't, but I would just say this is my experience. 24 hours into a fast, sitting in the presence of God with his word, the emptiness of my stomach makes me realize just how empty our physical world really is. We eat and eat and eat and always try to stave off hunger, but we are never truly filled or satisfied for long. It is like that with all of life, we are never truly satisfied or filled in this world. It's always one more thing, one more gadget, one more relationship, one more achievement, one more experience, or, 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 or. We are never filled, we are never full or satisfied here in this world. There is an aching, gnawing pain that this life cannot meet. Fasting helps me to realize that the true satisfaction in this life is not found here, but is actually found here. Somebody related fasting in this way, and I think it's probably the best way that I've understood it thus far. Fasting and prayer are always connected. Prayer is reaching up to God the Father, reaching for the divine, reaching for the eternal, and fasting is letting go of the world. It actually uniquely positions us to be in a place where we can actually more clearly than when our senses are normally dulled by all the things of life, we can actually focus on God and hear him more clearly, see him more dearly, and experience in him a, a very real time of fellowship. Uh, I know, <laughs> as I was sitting there and, and had written these words, I was starting to read, and the words were just popping off the page to me. It was like I couldn't eat them fast enough. They were just coming to me, and then a knock came to the door, and, and family was doing something, so I had to get up from that moment and move on. But I was so wanting to stay, because it was so beautiful. I, I, I'm not trying to make this mystical. I'm not trying to make this you know, metaphysical. I'm just saying that this is a, a portal that God has given us to experience himself, and we as well-fed Americans probably should do this more than any other people. Because we need to be breaking free from the bondage that this world holds us to. Fasting gives us that opportunity. It is a remarkable opportunity that God has provided for us. Uh, it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be a, a preaching out of the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount if I didn't reference either C.S. Lewis or John Piper. So I'm going to reference John Piper uh, at this moment because he says some things that are so well said. John Piper put it this way. He said, the weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. 
perhaps then the denial of our stomach's appetite for food might actually express or even increase our soul's appetite for the Father. I know that what I'm saying this morning is bizarre. A lot of us are sitting there saying, oh, Pastor Bill, we're done. We're having a barbecue for Dad. I know. I get that. I know. I know. And, you know, I get to admit for years and years and years, it was always ancillary to my walk with God. I always thought, yeah, that's that for that. It's for good pe- some people, you know. It's for, like, monks and monasteries or people who hide in caves, that kind of stuff, you know. But Jesus is taking it out of the mystical and away from the professional, and he's putting it in the hands of the believer, his follower. And he's saying, this can be true for you if you're willing to try this discipline in your life. This is the purpose. The purpose behind fasting for the believer is in order to intensify our expression of need for something greater, namely God in his work in our lives. And if you don't have a hunger for God, this is perfectly suited for you perfectly suited for me to increase that hunger for God. So that's the uh, purpose, if you will. Now let's talk a little bit about the plan, and then I'll be done. Let's talk a little bit about the plan, if you will, behind this thing called Christian fasting. Uh, As we do, let me begin by telling you how not to fast. How not to fast. Now remember, Jesus began this section on the interior of of the believer's life with this warning. Beware of practicing your righteousnesses, your, your spiritual habits or practices before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And again, the uh, religious establishment of Jesus' day uh, was in the habit of practicing their giving for the eyes of people, practicing their praying for the eyes of people. And when it came to this thing called fasting, they could look more miserable than anybody could ever, ever look. Notice what Jesus said. When you fast, do not what? Oh, why is me? I'm fasting. I'm so hungry. I got a headache. I'm detoxing right now. Don't bother me. You know, we, we can do that. We, we, can, we can do that. You know, oh. and you know, people are like, oh my gosh, he's so spiritual. He's fasting. As it, was, as it would be, the Jews, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, fasted 24-hour periods on both Monday and Thursday of every week. And so it was known this was their day of fasting. So they would come out and they would dishevel their hair and maybe throw a little bit of ash on them from some of the Old Testament scriptures. And they would walk around kind of miserable like, and everybody would, okay, they're fasting, they're fasting. But uh, notice what Jesus says. Uh, He says, uh, they do this that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their what? Yeah, don't expect that you're going to have a special time with your father when you're doing it for the eyes of others. So this is one of the ways you don't fast. This is one of the plans you don't use. So when you do fast, how are you to do this? Well, Jesus goes on to say, when you fast, here's a plan. What I want you to do is I want you to set aside a specific period of time. It can be one meal a week. I I suggest you start off very simply. It can be one day a week. It can be three days a week. Not every week, but just doing this periodically. You could fast for a whole week. Some people even do what is called the Daniel fast, which is a 21-day fast. Uh, I I looked at the video of the woman who put that fast out there. She says the problem with the, the Daniel fast is everybody's focused on the food. Everybody's focused on the food. The food's not the point. It's your relationship with God. It's the key component of that. Or you can do a full 40-day fast. 
So the point is, is choose your time, how you're going to use this, and be very thoughtful about it. Anoint your head and wash your face. Don't let everybody know you're doing it. Ladies, I just want to say, to the best of my knowledge, this is the only place in Scripture where you have divine authority to go out and get a facial and get your hair done. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, if you're going to do this, you should not just look good, you should look your best. People sit and question, oh my gosh, are you fasting? They should say, what makes you so lit up? It's like Moses on the mountain, he came down, his face was glowing. That's what should be, happen if you're doing fasting correctly. It's not about, whoa, beating yourself and woe is me. It's about meeting with the Father in a unique way, and your face is glowing because you get to experience him. And so you should be beaming. And so um, as I seek to grow this habit in my own life, I've done a 36-hour fast. I'm going to continue to experiment with um, a, a, a day fast, maybe twice a week. I'd like to try and do that personally. I don't know how that will formulate. Uh, I'd maybe even like to try and do a week fast because somehow getting beyond the, 20, the 36 hours... Um, you're beyond the headache, you're beyond the hunger, and you're beyond the detox factor. And at that point, you can really focus. I'm anxious to get to try that. You won't know I'm doing it other than I'll have a big smile on my face, okay? Oh, Pastor Bill looks beaming these days. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. See, that's how you're supposed to fast. This is what you're supposed to do. I just want to say this. When it comes to fasting, whether it's intermittent fast for your body, intermittent fasting for your brain, or this thing called spiritual fasting for your soul. All the information that you would really need to explore this deeper is on our website, gracewaldorf.org. Click on Messages. Just below the Messages for this series, you'll find a section in there on, on those three components. Some of them are downloadable, some of them are videos and other things. But I want to encourage you, God has given us a door. I think Jesus said something like this one time, didn't he? Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If you will open the door, I will come into you and I will eat with you and you with me. He's not talking about food because he has a food that we don't really know about. Because his food and the food that we're going to learn is this. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is a unique opportunity one that I'm excited to explore because I have been kept from it for many years by ignorance. Uh, I promise not to run off headlong into weirdness, okay? I'll do my best. But my goal is to experience God. That's my heart. That's what I want. And I pray that for you too. So again, uh, I want to just say this. I'm not a medical doctor. I don't know what medications you're taking or what limitations you have, but I am your soul doctor. And as your soul doctor, if it's at all possible, Step into this and see how God might use this in your life. Let me pray for us, and we will be done this morning. Father, I, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for giving us these avenues, these uh, paths of grace, uh, where we can personally know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Thank you that through this avenue of sacrificially giving and watching you meet needs in ways that we just could never put in our budgets. Thank you for giving us this avenue of prayer where we can focus on you and your glory and your name and your kingdom and your will as well as our needs. And thank you also for this unique new door that you have provided to me 
in getting to know you better. Lord, it's a little weird for us in our culture to talk about fasting. But I pray that you, through the Holy Spirit, might open that door for a few of us and help us not to be afraid to share how beautiful you are. In the wonderful name of Jesus, Father, and for your glory, the people of God said, God bless you.